Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the George Poo Show. I'm your host, George Poo, and today with us is Sohan Mehta, who's the co-host of the George Poo Show. So how's your day so far, Sohan? My day's been pretty good. It's been uh, working the whole day. Just kind of got off right now. How about you, George? How did you watch the World Cup today? Yes, yes. And a friend of mine was <laughs> screaming uh, when Canada lost. <laughs> Which is a bit sad. Um, so, but yeah, there are so many upsets in, in the World Cup. Yeah. I, I mean, the Saudi Arabia won with Argentina, right? So, not sure how that happened. Only Canada got an upset. <laughs> Did you bet on anything so far? Yeah, I put some. I put some money down for Canada to win. Just be patriotic. Okay. Uh, I wasn't expecting much. But we did really good though, which is kind of exciting. Yeah, I mean, it looks like it's been a slower week <laughs> for the news compared with the previous week. So. It's been exciting. So I think we, we have many topics to dive into. But I, what's your favorite topic? I think right now, like one of the best topics, we were talking about this like earlier, was um, like from last week, just continue on, was just like what's going to happen with Twitter. Like it feels like now that Twitter's really started consolidating the employees they have, it's kind of exciting just to see live like how that's going to be changing and everything like that. Yeah, I think I was a bit surprised when I first saw hashtag. I think it's like rip Twitter. Not sure if you saw that night. So everyone was saying goodbye to Twitter and they're like, oh, you know, saying goodbye to Twitter and, and oh, if, if Twitter is down, here's where to find me, right? So I, I'm not sure where that originated. Um, but I think it, but it was like, what's going on, right? And then you'll start seeing like news articles, basically saying like some critical infrastructure team has gone, you know, 25% more people have left Twitter and then it's going to crumble down. So it's just all the um, quote unquote media theories. So I personally was yeah. waiting for it to go down that day, but did not because I was like told, oh, it's going to go down. So what was your experience? Yeah, I don't know about you, but like every time I go on Twitter, it's the same experience. If I feel like there's less bots now, actually, if anything, the experience is a little bit better now. So yeah, like uh, I remember I would see like the hashtag group Twitter. I thought like, yeah, it was going to crash too. And then, yeah, it seems like it's perfectly fun. It's running. It's doing great. It's thriving. Yeah, like, what do you think it's, like, the implication of, of, of this, like, you know, I guess 75% of people are gone for an entire company, and a product is working, quote-unquote, normally, right? And I'm assuming not many hours have left, or they have not left because it's a specific reason for the layoffs. Like, what does that mean, right? Like, for, you know, office workers or tech workers, mm -hmm. does it mean, like, more layoffs are going to come soon in the coming months? Because people are seeing, like, oh, I can just lay off people, and then the function, the product is still work. Yeah, I think we've been hearing rumblings of like uh, even like the like businesses that weren't as much affected. Like I know Meta got affected a lot, so they had to lay off a lot of people. But like businesses like Google that are like very profitable, they're starting to consider maybe like they're going to be doing layoffs too. And like it's not like Google took a big hit like during this recession in terms of like actually how the businesses run. It's starting to seem like, yeah, like a lot of the people we hired during COVID, we just overhired and now we have to start consolidating. And like it's kind of like a correction, instead of a correction in the market, it feels kind of a correction for these companies. I think when I first heard about Shopify layoffs, uh, I was actually I was actually on Twitter. I was I was reviewing like you know a list of people that are being let go, and it's obviously sad they were being let go. But I was really surprised to find that most of those roles are not related to the core products, which I don't remember what is it now. I think it's something to do with like Shopify games or something like that, right? And something that's not related to a core underlying mm -hmm. of the product. So apparently they grew their team for fifty percent in just a year. And there are many roles are just like completely redundant, right? Like you hired 50% more people um, in just a year. So that's Shopify. And mm -hmm. now they let people go. So I, I, so that was surprising. And then for Twitter, I was, I, I don't know what's my opinion of it, but like when some people got like, oh, I saw there's like a head of human rights at Twitter. So I was a, a bit surprised. Like what's, like, what's that, right? Like, you know, obviously human rights is important. It's like, what's the head of human rights at Twitter? Like is Twitter like an NGO? 
is it a government organization like you know like just it just doesn't make any sense yeah. um, and there's so, so many other roles that just it seems like a political role instead of like an actual useful role right so like apparently all the um, media communication team is gone but I, I guess it's still working functionally in terms of like Elon Musk reaching out to the media reporters so that was just my that was just my thoughts I definitely do not agree with everything he's done I, I kind of echo what Matt said right like there's so many great engineers who have left and I think there's underlying problems to it just maybe it's not coming up right now mm-hmm. but in terms of what it means I think it means two things first it just means that working from home is going to be slowly fading away at least for big tech I was on a Google yeah. campus okay. the other day and I literally heard like a manager giving a tour to like a Danish government or something. And they, and they were saying, you know, like right now, not everyone's coming back working from home, but, you know, from Google standpoint, like we want, we want to push everyone to coming back to the office really, really soon. So that's what I overheard. And I'm pretty sure that's like a trend, right? Like it, and just on Twitter, I think before Elon Musk took it over, it was nobody works in the office. It looks like, right? Everyone works from home. And the productivity of working from home, like, you know, unfortunately mm-hmm. for those like tech workers, if you're not an engineer, I just personally think it's not really productive. Uh, what do you think, Saul? Like, yeah, speaking from somebody that works from home, I can definitely see that, like, I'm sure the productivity takes a little bit of a hit. I don't think it's as much the productivity as it's much your personal alignment with like the mission of the company. Like, for example, when I'm actually at the firm and I'm talking to my coworkers, you have like kind of a camaraderie with your team, right? Like you guys all want to succeed. When you're kind of working from home, you're kind of isolated, you kind of silo yourself. And just you and the work. So when you're working late nights and stuff like that, at one point, that's why in during COVID, we saw so much turnover as well, right? People kept going from one firm to another firm all the time. And I felt like that became kind of like normal just because, yeah, yeah, like when you work from home, you don't really have that sense of loyalty to like one brand kind of thing. Yeah. And I also think just like it matters a lot to team sizes. I think for a smaller team like my team, we have about 12 Mm -hmm. people. So we don't really have any issues with working from home. I do find like managing everyone to be a bit challenging, but the team is still moving forward, right? And we're, and we're still like, yeah. if I want to track, let's say this engineer, I want to see if, if he or she has done anything in the past two sprints, how it's their productivity. Like all those things are concrete. Me as a manager can actually see that, right? But I just can't see that when you're like with thousands of people, like when your organization is like thousands of people or tens of thousands of people, yeah. or in Google's case, hundreds of thousands of people. I just cannot see how you can manage that big of an organization effectively, right? I mean, maybe you can break it down into say, oh, like we can have like a team of 10 or 50 or 100. Still, I doubt it's going to be a team of 10, by the way. Team of 10 is actually easy to manage, but a team of 50 or a team of 100, it's not going to be high productivity, right? And you can mm-hmm. see that. I'm not sure, Sam, if you have seen any like YouTube videos of uh, a day in the life of a uh, Google engineer or a day in life of a Microsoft engineer. I'm not sure. Have you seen those oh, videos? No, I haven't. <laughs> but, but if you've seen those videos, no, you'll, see, you'll see they actually don't do anything. I think that's just the honest sense of it. They don't do anything. Actually, yeah, I think I've seen like, um, like maybe not like on YouTube or anything, but I've seen like, yeah, the TikToks of just like people, yeah, they explain that, yeah, their life in Google or something, they're working two or three hours a day. And like a lot of them, I also see, oh, they start moonlighting for like a second job in tech as well. Just I, that, I have heard of that. That one also, their own working. I have heard of people with, actually working at I Meta think, and Google in the same time. I have heard actual stories. Yeah, which is just so crazy because like, I mean, like the fame companies was like the coveted company, right? If you want to go into tech, that's kind of where you want to go. If you're working at two of them at the same time. And, and the thing is, you, they still have like a lot more free time than like most people working Kind of like your like 40 hour weeks or maybe like a little bit longer than that, which is just kind of crazy, especially when you start factoring how much compensation they're getting. I guess like that's like a long winded way of saying I don't see where this, you know, like uh, Twitter and like Elon's always been good at like keeping a lean team, just like uh, be as productive as possible. I can see where like 
maybe like Twitter, like a head like Elon was kind of what the software tech part needed just to see like how much extra people they just hire just for the sake of hiring. And think about the redundancy of capital over the past three years, right? Like every company, Google, Facebook, mm-hmm. like Amazon, their stock is going up like 50% in like a year or something. So when capital becomes abundant, talent also becomes hard to find because they can just quit Google and work at Microsoft the other day. And then they can probably have like 20% exactly. uh, money bump. And that just create like a very unhealthy culture of the companies just have to, you know, put free food on the table. They have to do a lot of things just to attract the talent. They're losing more money per person, I'm sure, than, than what they're putting up with the salaries, right? And that culture has spread into the whole valley and, you know, tech sector in general. And that has caused, I think, some redundancy on the company's part. And, you know, like in, on the employee's part, they're like, oh, I can work three hours a day and I can just get away with it. That's quite quitting. That's how it starts. But I would say it's more for tech work. It's more like a comfort zone issue than quite quitting. I think people still like the job. They just realize they that's can true. just work three hours a day and they will still be fine. So that's why people are doing two jobs, right? And no one's really calling this out because um, no one wants to call this out. But I, I just feel like, wow, like the tech workers are, are getting very comfortable, you know, in, in a way. I think that's why when there's layoffs happening, I guess it's a company's response of like, okay, like we know you're being slacking off and now we're just like going to go do those layoffs. And Amazon CEO, I think, has warned that there's more to come in 2023. And Meta as well. I think mm-hmm. uh, Google is being pressured by activist investors to do more layoffs. Personally, I think it just gives them like a, some groundwork to prepare the layoffs. Uh, even though I, I know Google has never laid off on people, but from what I've heard, some rumors is that there are teams that are already doing the reorganizations. So they're already doing performance reviews and letting some people go um, at some scale, right? Not like a scale of layoffs. So I think those are all happening at the moment. Companies realize, oh shit, it's 2022. You know, I now have to actually be careful. I cannot continue as before, just like in every startup. That's what I think. Exactly. Yeah, I think you kind of hit the hammer on the nail with like the fact that just before, yeah, like interest rates were basically zero. Like you had so much capital, like everyone's stock was just going up tenfold. So yeah, like people just kept saying, okay, we'll hire more employees just to kind of like fund the growth. And then like you said, with like Shopify, they started like investing in like very high risk projects for like a low return, just for the idea, just because you had so much money, you could do it, right? Mm-hmm. And now we're seeing like everything's starting to consolidate. The interest rates are going higher. The cost of capital to be able to like hire these employees has increased like tenfold almost. And so now like, yeah, it's becoming important to make sure whoever you're hiring is somebody that will be a positive like ROI for the company overall. So exactly. it's going to make sense to see what a company like Google who like hasn't laid anybody off like before, like in terms of at this scale. Yeah, I think it, one good thing that happens is that there's more high quality people on the market to for hire. You know, my company was posting a job mm-hmm. post the other day for a backend developer. And I was surprised there are how many talented engineers apply for that role compared with when, I, when we posted the exact same role in 2021, whereas I was struggling to find candidates in a way. Now it's a lot more abundant, yeah. quite quality candidates that we can hire. So I guess in some ways, I think that's a great thing, great news for startups um, because now the big tech is crumbling not crumbling down, but definitely crumbling. And they're all freeze hiring, right? So uh, it's unfortunate for some workers that got laid mm-hmm. off. But at the same time, I think it's some good news for startups, even though I know for startups are also enduring some tough times. Yeah. I guess with the good always also comes the bad, right? Like, I mean, I just like graduated just like uh, in August. So I kind of feel for some of the people that were supposed to go to Meta and things that, you know, like they got laid off before their first day and things like that. But like for like that, that sucks. But like for like the overall market, like from like holistically, 
Yeah, it's great. Like, you know, like startups now can get like genuinely good quality talent. You're not just like trying to go for like a bottom of the barrel talent or anything like that. Uh, like that can start expanding. And then once startups kind of get to a phase where they can start competing with like bigger companies too, it'll be an exciting time. Like I think talent kind of drives everything, right? And so mm-hmm. it should be a good time. Just yeah, and I, I agree. I think I think quiet quitting is probably coming to an end uh, pretty soon. Uh, it was a big thing earlier mm-hmm. this year. Everyone's talking about it. Now I think it still exists, obviously, but I think it's winding down. In my opinion, it's winding down. Like, what do you think? The way I kind of see it, I think whenever the economy is going through a boom, what ends up happening is companies just want more and more people. They start hiring, so the talent starts reducing in terms of who's available, which means the talent that's already gotten in, they have a lot more power. Now that, like, the talent, they have a lot less power, you have to do the work to be able to set the firm, right? Beforehand, like, when the talent, like, when the employees itself had, like, a lot more power, like, uh, employers were kind of scared to say, hey, no, you have to work this much. Because, like, uh, if you're, if one of your best developers is quit, you're kind of dead, right? So, yeah, I think, like, this whole quiet quitting thing is definitely going to come, like, down. As like, because, again, like, I think everyone's kind of scared about where the economy is going to be for 2023 as well. Yeah, and, and speaking of 2023, I think one big news item for the day or for the week is that the Fed has signaled they might slow down mm-hmm. rate hikes. Does that mean inflation has peaked? Does that mean we're going for a more moderate 2023? Yeah, I think that's, um, it's either that or it feels like everything's kind of, yeah, correct. Like you said, like inflation's sort of peaked because we're, we're trying to like, uh, you know, like decrease inflation as much as possible. Like Biden had the anti-inflation act or something along those lines. And yeah, like it was obviously the biggest thing for Biden, like at midterm elections now, but like slowing down these rate hikes, it's going to be important to see where companies are starting to invest this capital next for 2023. Because I think like, yeah, we're starting to consolidate in terms of how everything's going to be as economy for the next little bit. Yeah, I guess my question is like, do we really believe the inflation has peaked? I think there's questions to be asked about how they're actually evaluating inflation, right? I heard some of them just do like surveys or they just have people going to grocery stores, calculating how much, like basically mm-hmm. observing like how much a certain item like milk or eggs cost over a period of time. Is that a great way of looking at inflation? So I'm like, is there other ways they're doing to like calculate inflation? But in terms of how they always historically calculate, I think you hit it, right? Like it's the CPI index, like the consumer price index, which, yeah, they get like a basket of goods and they see how much that basket of goods would have cost last month versus how much it's going to cost this month. But whatever is in that basket of goods, the government kind of gets to pick what that's going to be, right? And Mm -hmm. whoever's like measuring it, that's who they get to pick. But then like when you actually think about like a day-to-day people that are living in the economy, what are like big uh, purchases, like a house, for example, you know, like your basket of goods might have only gone up like 5%, like the cost of an apple might have only gone up 5% in that time span. But then like the cost of a house might have gone up like 40, 50%. Like we see house prices are still, they have consolidated a bit, but they still haven't gone down to pre-COVID level or anything like that, right? So mm-hmm. when you start looking at it, like in terms of like the actual cost of living, I, I don't think the way we do it with like the whole basket of goods is a good measurement of inflation because Take a step back. Inflation is technically just trying to measure the rate of change, right? In terms of how much your purchasing power was today versus how much is going to be tomorrow versus how much it was yesterday. And that's all you're trying to predict with it. But if that basket of goods is something that the government gets to pick in terms of like what they're using to measure it and things like that, it starts becoming a little more wonky in terms of what that number actually represents. How about yeah. you, George? I was just taking like an observation. I was making an example to my friend. Basically, I was buying the Costco um, coffee bean pack. Um, I always buy that coffee mm-hmm. bean pack from Kirkland. I think it used to be $14.99. Yes. And then I bought it the other week and it's $22.99. 
right? I mean, I'm not a mathematician, but I think that's more than whatever the, the CPI number is telling us. It's definitely more than 10%. It's way higher. My question is just like, okay, mm-hmm. that is actually inflation that everyday consumer is like observing in day-to-day markets. And I'm not saying like, the, oh, the Fed is just like, oh, should look at the you know things and then hike the rates more. I, I don't think that's really healthy for the economy. But like, are we really seeing inflation slowing? It's my real question, right? Like, is it really slowed or is it just like something that's, you know, like the, create a bubble by the Fed or the government? What do you think, so? Yeah, I think like big picture in terms of 2023 and onwards, I think inflation's kind of slowed down a little bit just because I think all these price hikes that you mentioned, yeah, like the Kirkland coffee or for me, like one of my favorite things has always been like a McDonald's junior chicken. And then I think back to like high school when a uh, junior chicken used to be like 150 or $2 versus now it's insane. Like the price increases, right? But I don't see like a lot more price increases for 2023 and onwards. Because it seems like a lot of the supply chain issues, like those are also starting to become a little bit less uh, important. Like we've started figuring that part out. So that's, um, that I think was a big driver as well for inflation along with just like the amount of money that we had printed. I think it was at one point, I think with like the amount of technology we have, like markets kind of consolidate faster now. Like the velocity of uh, corrections, I think is faster now than it was like historically. So it, to me, it seems that, yeah, like for 2023, I don't think. All these price changes we see, that's kind of like where the main part's going to be. I don't think it's going to be too much increases in terms of like to like the hyperinflation that we were kind of scared of. I think the Fed did a good job of like kind of protecting consumers from something that bad. How about you, George? Yeah, I agree with you. So I'm, I'm just kind of raising the question of, you know, like the world is not really the same place as we were in 2019, right? I'm not even speaking of COVID, yeah. right? Like China still has those lockdowns right, because of COVID or because not of COVID. Um, they still have those lockdowns that have basically impacted mm-hmm. their GDP in real real time, right? And then we have the Russian-Ukraine war, which just, you know, which, which is costing oil demand, like to oil prices to considerably go up. And I think we were having news last month about U.S. potentially running out of diesel, right? And which is not like a joke. It was real. So my question is like, yes, inflation might not be the top of mind anymore, which I hope it's not like a big issue anymore. Are there mm-hmm. other factors, you know, in a market that in, in the world that we live in today that, that might, you know, negatively impact the market in a very big way, like a black swan event. Yeah, I think you kind of mentioned something really important about like, yeah, like uh, how almost the entire world had like energy dependence on Russia, right? Like um, before, you know, like uh, all the European countries, USA, they used to love to brag that, oh, like we're not fracking anymore. We don't dig for coal. We don't dig for oil, all this kind of stuff. Like, you know, we're a lot lower. But all they kind of did was they just like outsourced all of their guilt, right? To like different countries and like Russia, Saudi Arabia, all these other countries, like all the OPECs, they basically started like consolidating and like they were the ones that kind of like gave everybody the oil. And so when the world was doing okay, like 2019 and everything, yeah, it wasn't really that big an issue. Then 2020, Saudi and Russia had like this, their oil war, oil prices went into negative because they kept flooding the markets. Now we see in 2022, Russia and Ukraine go into a war. And then Europe still, I think, uh, takes a large amount of like their natural gas from Russia, even with all these sanctions, right? Like Germany, I still think is one or two in terms of like the amount of natural gas they're importing from Russia. So it seems like all that energy dependence on like other countries is starting to take a step back. And a lot of people, even like environmentalists, are starting to say, yeah, it's okay that for a transitory period, let's go back to coal, let's go back to fracking until we have something like nuclear or solar ready to like deploy in our own countries. And I think that's something we're going to see like a lot more of in 2023 where like those traditional oil and gas companies start making a comeback just because 
we need that during like the transition period until we're ready to deploy renewable energy globally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. And I just think like, you know, many other podcasts and TV show, uh, CNBC, they said that they think the inflation has like, you know, basically mm-hmm. peaked, the economy is going on the right track again. I just don't know why. I just feel like I'm that pessimistic guy who says, okay, I don't think it's going to be okay in 2023. Yeah. I really hope, I pray to God it's going to be okay in 2023, <laughs> but I just don't think it's going to be okay. And I don't know what's going to happen, right? I, and I think maybe a lot of consumers are like me in, in a way, but I also don't think that's true because you know you saw the U.S. midterms. I think uh, inflation was the top of the topic, right? But um, I, I think I think in some ways it might just be mm-hmm. that consumers don't think they have been impacted that much yet by inflation, um, so they voted uh, in favor of the current administration. So I'm just thinking like you know maybe peak inflation hasn't gone that much deep into the day to day household. Maybe like next year will people start to feel more impacts to it. I don't know. What do you think, Soham? I think that might be a radical view. So, like, the first point you said was just about, like, the overall market, you're still, like, a little more pessimist. And I could kind of echo that. But one thing, I think that's kind of different from, like, uh, 08, for example, was we have a lot more strict regulations intact right now. So even when, like, during 2020, when, like, people were just able to borrow money, like, no tomorrow, all that debt that they have, even ones that are, like, consumers are going to go bankrupt or, like, they just had too much, they overlevered themselves. Even them, I think that's a much smaller percentage in terms of like our overall population now than what it was back in the day. And I think that's one of the most like important metrics when we try to just see how like the economy is actually going to do once. Yeah, like all you said, like a lot of people and consumers probably haven't felt the overall impacts of their inflation. They've only felt it like maybe at the grocery store a little bit, but not like just their every, every single day thing. Right. So I just think that because there aren't going to be as many people that had to overlever themselves it won't be as bad as what we've seen previously. And hopefully the consumer that people are taking are not uh, at a question level as pre-COVID, which I, I read the news that at a time of COVID, it was super high. The, the amount of personal, sorry, credit card debt, yeah. personal loan debt, the car loans, right? Like it was all winding down. I think the same issues still exist today. I wonder if that's the same as 2019, but uh, hopefully, hopefully it's not. So we'll switch on our topic a little bit to talk more about Disney, which I think on Sunday, the Sunday night, um, the Disney board adjourned a meeting, and I think they fired their existing CEO, Bob Chapek, and the uh, former CEO of Disney, Bob Iger, came in and become the current CEO. So I'm like, I mean, what happened? Why like a Sunday night massacre, so to speak? I think Disney was probably, like, let's go back to like pre-COVID, just like uh, 2019, December, when Disney was just releasing Disney+, Plus, you know, and everything was going green flags for Disney, right? Bob Iger was kind of on the top of the world. Like, he took on probably, I think it was the biggest merger at the time with Fox, right? And he implemented it successfully, and nobody thought that Disney would be able to do well after, like, implementing Fox into their own system and everything. Bob Iger did that well, you know, and then, like, he says, okay, 2020 comes, I'm going to step down for a bit. And then Bob Chapek comes in as like the CEO. And he, I think, was running like all the Disneyland, Disney resorts. And I think that he just didn't have enough of an understanding when it came to like more of the growth aspects of Disney, which was going to be more like, yeah, Disney Plus. I think that was going to be one of the biggest things that Disney Plus wanted to kind of compete with Netflix, right? And, you know, Disney has like a lot, Disney has a lot of content themselves, but they don't have a lot of like the infrastructure for tech companies. So that was where like Disney was trying to grow like 2020 and onwards. I just don't think Bob Chip was the right guy for something like that. Like his expertise was a lot more in terms of like, oh, how do we get tourists to Disneyland? How is Disneyland the most, the happiest place on earth kind of thing, right? And so I just think that, yeah, it was kind of like the wrong pick for who should replace Bob Iger. And I think him coming back should be great news for anyone that's a Disney shareholder. So what went wrong with Disney Plus? Is it just the content is not as viable as before? The storytelling is not as good as before? 
um, or is it that, that they overspend on content and they burn themselves into debt? Which one is it? I think it's not that anything went wrong with Disney Plus, and like I think the growth was really good, but I just don't think Currency was able to put as much of a focus on it, and like as they should have basically. I think Disney Plus, like they tried to do um, Disney specials, like when they put Hamilton on like Disney Plus for a little bit, right? In terms of how what their projections were, I don't think it was able to hit that. Um, I could be wrong with that estimate, but overall, I just don't think Bob Chapek was able to take all the legacy Disney characters they had. And once they put on Disney Plus, I don't think he was able to grow that platform as much as what shareholders were expecting it to be. Because it was supposed to be like the Netflix killer, right? And a little bit of that was like the overall market was starting to step away from streaming. Like even Netflix took a big hit recently. But like it looks like Netflix starting to make a comeback too. And Disney's stock price is like, I think was like 98 or 100 bucks. Something that was like um, during like the worst part of COVID too. Which, wow. yeah, like as a shareholder, definitely something you're not going to be okay with. Yeah, and props to Jim Cramer, who uh, a favor for uh, JPEG's outstrings. I did remember the CNBC show, which Jim, Jim was on. He was he was basically saying this is the worst quarter of a major company in modern history. <laughs> so I'm not sure I agree with that sentiment, but I believe that every major shareholder probably feels the same way. So they just had a really bad quarter. I think a couple of days ago when the quarter earnings comes out, I think that's probably mm-hmm. what feel the that's probably like the last you know, the last step, right, that triggered the fire, essentially. So I think that's why he was fired. So I'm like, I don't know if you're studying Disney that well, like, what do you think goes from here? Like, is it a good idea to bring the former CEO back to run a company? In terms of like, uh, the forms like Bob Iger himself, like, I think he's probably one of the best CEOs, like, in terms of the States overall, just because I think all the different challenges he's had, he's been able to do and he's been able to execute on it well. And like, his story was kind of nice, like, he kind of grew within Disney. He was like a, not a cameraman, but somebody like on the producer's set. And like from there, he just kept going up and up and rising through the ranks. So he's something that kind of like understands the blood that Disney kind of flows with. Disney's been able to become kind of like a conglomerate with just, you know, Mickey Mouse. Like that was like kind of where they grew from, right? So him like coming back, I think is going to be like really good for Disney overall. Like I know they, their quarter, they didn't do nearly as good with Disneyland and Disney World as they were kind of hoping for. So I think like he should be able to like help grow that too. And. Yeah, I think I'm very excited to see what Bob Iger like uh, can do. I think it's kind of like the revitalization of when like Steve Jobs kind of came back to Apple kind of thing. I did read his book a year or two ago. I think his strategy was so I'm like was mostly about acquiring other studios and companies, right, to increase mm-hmm. the revenue and, and keep it alive in a way to keep it relevant. Like, do you agree with that strategy? Like, it's just keep yeah. buying, keep your keep yourself bigger. I think like in terms of like as like, like like a cookie cutter strategy for every company, I don't think that's good. But Bob Iger was able to do it well. Like I don't think a lot of companies could have bought Marvel, could have bought George Lucas, and done as well as like Bob Iger was able to do with it. Like um, it seems most of the times when acquisitions happen, the synergies that like they keep on projecting just don't go nearly as well as people thought was going to happen, right? But I think, you know, I think Bob Iger is like probably the one person like that strategy worked with because I think they actually take the time just to see if like this is going to fit. They have a plan in place beforehand. They don't just kind of pay a premium to say, okay, we'll take it and we'll figure it out from then on. I think that's kind of like where that key divide comes in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really great point. Speaking of entertainment, I would love to change the topic mm-hmm. a little bit uh, into like FTX, not the mm-hmm. company itself. <laughs> SBF just tweeted that he will be on a panel next Wednesday at the New York Times Dealbook Conference. So he will be speaking at the New mm-hmm. York Times Dealbook Conference next Wednesday. So I think it's in a shockwaves across Twitter, at least. Um, and I think the Dealbook also ran a very positive piece about SBF regarding, I think, how he made friends that influenced mm-hmm. people. 
I thought that was, I would be honest with you, I, when I first read it, I was like, there's no way that's a, that's a tweet you just wrote. Um, they just wrote from Dealbook. I thought they scheduled that tweet weeks ago and it was supposed to go out today, but it was an article that is posted yesterday, I believe. So it's relevant and they're praising mm-hmm. SBF. I'm shocked. Uh, I, I, hope, I don't know if it's the first time you heard of it. What are your takes? I just feel like it's kind of like a more bigger picture. It really feels like people are kind of picking and choosing who to ostracize and who to just like kind of but just slip under the rug. That oh, you just made a little, little mistake. Like I mean, you know, SBF kind of did commit like a big fraud. He took investors' money. He took all of their deposits. When this hedge fund just yoled away on random cryptos, right? Mm-hmm. Like I feel like on the New York Times overall, like they, yeah, he's on their panel, but they also didn't publish like a really bad hit piece on him or anything like negative about him at all. Like they still put him in a positive light, which makes no sense to me in like, you know, just in terms of how is he able to be celebrated like on a panel with something as prestigious as New York Times, which uh, just, yeah. Yeah, I think he has made some personal investments into some of the media landscapes. I do believe, I don't quote, mm-hmm. I might be wrong. I think he invests in Vox Media or Vice News. I think he also owns oh, really? a piece of Business Insider. Again, don't call me on that. I just remember that from Twitter. So I don't think he owns New York Times. I mean, he might own some stocks. I don't know. But like, and he has made some campaign donations, right? To, you know, one party of the, yeah, he's in, a, in America. I think he's the second largest donor to He's the, the second biggest donor, right? For the yeah. Democrats? To, yeah, for the Democrats. I believe mm-hmm. so. Does that have to do with anything? I don't know. Like, is that, is, is there something that, you know, basically promoted him more after his downfall? I guess so. Yes. And I think the news that just came out uh, through the bankruptcy filings, I think uh, yesterday, is that apparently a majority of FDX's customer funds are missing or stolen or missing. So like majority of those funds are gone, right? And then apparently like, the SBF parents bought a $121 million penthouse in the Bahamas. So the question arises as like, okay, they are Stanford professors and they're well off, but like, are they in the well off level to buy a $121 million penthouse? So all those questions, right? And then, you know, you see the FTX's main team, like the core team, I think their CTO also also like took $50 million just like on the go. And then you saw that all the th- those things happening. And SBF is spotted buying groceries two weeks ago or a week ago at the Bahamas Superstore. And he was seen running in somewhere, somewhere else, like running to his apartment. It just makes you think, okay, what's going on, right? Because when Bernie Madoff, uh, when that was revealed as a fraud, he was arrested the same day. And he was disgraced by the media. And it's been, mm-hmm. what, two, three weeks since the FTX collapsed bankruptcy? And the New York Times is inviting him to a panel and also giving him props with the news piece that's positive. And then also, not like I support Elon Musk or anything, like why is he being bashed everywhere in the news? Like why is every media, traditional media going yeah. after him? I do not understand. Like they're all writing his like the sort of evil person destroying Twitter, you know, like ignoring human rights. I'm just puzzled. <laughs> what, do, what do you think? You know, sure. I think you kind of raise a good point. I think one of the reasons actually like uh, SBF still hasn't got like that much bad criticism was because while he was like the golden child, everyone in Silicon Valley, everyone in like America thought he was like one of the best people on the planet, right? Like he was going to donate everything that he was making this amazing crypto, like everything. New York Times made, I don't know how many positive like articles about him. And then once this happened, like it would also make New York Times look bad that, oh, they didn't do their due diligence. Versus with somebody like Elon Musk, it's pretty easy to criticize just because he's so public with everything he kind of says, right? Like he just tweets whatever he feels. He makes jokes, memes, all this kind of stuff. And like during like 2020, 2021, he was 
you know, like going hard for Dogecoin as just like a joke and all this kind of thing. So it makes it easy to kind of like target somebody like that when you're, you know, like um, maybe like just more like traditionalist that, you know, like looks like a lot of different other things when it comes to anything else. Exactly. And I think that traditional media is usually on the negative side for tech. Like if you look at the most of the stories, like, you know, mm-hmm. if you look across from like, you know, tech blocks, like TechCrunch or, you know, Vox Media, I think you do see that most of the news are negative, right? Like, for example, like if you sometimes you see what's happened, what's going on to the front page of the New York Times, uh, Wall Street Journal and, you know, your post. I think better.com CEO firing people, which is a mistake, which, which is definitely, like, <laughs> he was, he was very, he was very agitated. He was very demanding when he laid off his employees, which that made the front news, right? Not like a scientific breakthrough or a breakthrough of technology, but there are definitely problems in the tech industry that just, just not be like, you know, th- that's absolutely true. But I feel like some of the media, I think they just focus on the, the bad things that's happening in tech and uh, maybe it's a culture clash, maybe it's something else. But I do think like from knowing some of the people I know, that's the traditional sense of it. Um, and it might also just because like when you print positive news, you know, some maybe no one reads it or people don't want to read it. But when you print something negative, that's eye-catching. Um, people tend to read it, right? Like because the how the subscription part of media is now. Like every every news media is basically subscription based, right? Or funded by the government in a way. So I guess like that makes people think, okay, if you're just gonna report news as same as everywhere else, like why would I need to subscribe to your outlet? Maybe that has also contributed. Just just my personal opinion. What are your thoughts, Son? No, I think that makes sense. I think you kind of hit it on that. It's like that tech was always just something that wasn't as like uh, sexy versus like with FTX. I think the big reason why they took off was like Tom Brady and his wife Giselle were like promoting it so much, right? Like I think he lost so much of his net worth. I forget how much just because they put a lot of money in, right? Yeah. right? Like just reporting that, oh, Tom Brady buys his crypto is like a lot easier to publish as a story because a lot of like the older people that would have probably like read like traditional media. They didn't really understand what like a lot of the new tech industries were, like SaaS companies, things like that. That wasn't something that was like inherently they understood like consumer products. Like, you know, like if you go to Food Basics and you just buy some groceries there, you understand like, oh, how these companies make these products. But you know, tech was always something that was like kind of new. And a lot of people that didn't like actually study tech didn't really even understand, oh, what do these companies exactly do? Like, what is the service they provide, right? Like you understand how Google works, but you don't really understand like how Google makes money kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. I think games like stems from there. So whoever the audience is that you're trying to cater to, you want to make sure they can also like kind of understand like the hit pieces you're going to be producing too. Right. Mm-hmm. And like things like that. Exactly. I mean, are we seeing like a renaissance for, you know, newer form media? And is that going to, because for example, like the podcast, like the one we're doing now, it's basically unfiltered. And, you know, like there are things that we can just say, you know, without having mm-hmm. to fear for any, like we're not owned by any corporate entity. We're just here having a chat, right? And, and broadcasting it to, you know, lots of people. So question is like, is form of content like this or like the, you know, the user made videos like YouTube, like uh, TikTok, right? Like, is that going to become the mm-hmm. future? Are, are just less people going to turn into cable news and essentially traditional media? I know it's being said that it has been, but like, you know, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think there's been like, I think kind of Netflix started this, like uh, where you go completely from the traditional, oh, renting movies, like watching TV, watching cable to like, you know, like starting to just be at home, like stream. And I think from there, what stemmed was, yeah, like podcasts, like you said, like what the one we're doing right now, or um, so even Twitter, like the whole like town hall, people just tweeting out news, like for basketball, you know, you don't wait for articles about like, oh, what players were um, tweet, like what players were traded. You wait for a tweet from Woj, you know, you wait for your Woj bombs. Things like that. Like, you know, like I think like that kind of shift started coming because like the speed that you're getting these news was important. And with podcasts, like the quality that you're getting is like 
you're getting like, you know, like a longer form. You're getting people to kind of answer the question without really any kind of filter. Like, I think in terms of like traditional media, like when we saw the Piers Morgan and R- Ronaldo interview, like when that was completely unfiltered, right? Like it was like a long form. I think people were like willing to like stay tuned for something like that. But then when like um, news outlets need like a 30 minute segment every single day, at that point, like the quality will just start diminishing at one point, right? Yeah. I think that's kind of like what the point of intersection was when podcasts were able to take off a lot more. And I don't think traditional media will be able to catch up. Yeah. And I really hate the TV ads. Just to put it on the record here, I hate these yeah, ads. That's- they are horrible. Like I don't need stippers. That's going to keep me warm in winter. I can just go on Amazon and buy it. I don't need my pillow. <laughs> it's a great pillow, but I don't need I don't need my pillow on the ad section every twenty minutes. Those, it's too much. Those right? five minute commercial <laughs> where they say. it's too much, right? Yeah. And, and, and by the way, like is Pierce Morgan his own person, like his own show, or is it like a traditional media? Because I thought he started something new. I think it's his show, but it's on like uh, I think CNN. Don't quote me on that, but it, it's on like a news outlet. Like it's on a news okay. channel. But he just interviews people, kind of like a podcast, like a long form format as well. Oh, okay. I, I doubt it'll be CNN because because CNN is more on the left. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's CNN. Yeah, probably something else. Yeah, that's interesting. And honestly, if you, if you go to like the Silicon Valley or if you talk to people in tech, they have kind of like the same attitude with traditional media as like me or you. Some sort of disdain, which, you know, I, mm-hmm. I still have to figure out why. But I just think that's like super interesting. Yeah, super interesting. So I think another thing, you know, related to what we just discussed is like, in terms of free speech, right? Free speech on Twitter, free speech everywhere else. So we did have the Donald Trump account um, and Kanye West accounts and Jordan Peterson mm-hmm. and a few other uh, previously suspended accounts that has been reinstated. And, you know, if you saw the poll that Elon posted, it was about, I think it was about 52% agrees uh, Trump should be back yeah, to Twitter. 48% really says no, it's really close, right? So what are your thoughts, uh, Soham, about that poll and just like the decision of bringing him back? I think the poll itself, I think, was the most perfect way to uh, decipher somebody as polarizing as Donald Trump. Like you have parties on both sides, like ones that are like fighting actively, like, oh, Trump should be back on Twitter, like he's important. Then the other ones saying that he's important in a bad way, like he's going to cause a capital riot hills. Whatever like side you're on, but you had two polarizing like sides. And at that point, you know, in a true democracy, I think that the most perfect way is saying, yeah, let's just put it to a vote. And that kind of form, I think, is going to be really exciting when it comes to, you know, like really important public figures. If they, like like you mentioned also, like Kanye, like if they do something that's like really heinous that, you know, like they should be considered being kicked off the platform, instead of like um, Elon who just owns it, making that decision, it feels kind of nice that we, the people, get to make that decision. It's like direct democracy, which I kind of like. Yeah, I think previously it was definitely like one-sided moderation. And part of it, maybe it's because the mm-hmm. advertisers are pressuring Twitter to be moderating more because their their clients are more, you know, are, are larger corporations who are you know, traditionally leaning towards one direction more. It could be, be that, but like it was definitely like as a user, mm-hmm. I definitely feel that some people are being turned off. Whereas, you know, the other, there are violence on both sides, just to say that. There are calls for violence on both sides. And there are sometimes that one side is being censored more, at least that's my personal opinion before. Personally, I think that decision, I think you're right. So I'm, I think uh, putting to a vote is a good decision because whatever he decides, if Elon Musk decides, oh, let's bring him on versus let's not bring him on, 50% of the population will be angry at him. Yeah. So I, it's the smart decision to make. It was a lose-lose. Yeah, it's a lose-lose. And I think, you know, Facebook, I think they were doing like, um, they have a panel 
So Facebook suspended Trump's account after the January 6th Capitol Hill riot. And then after that, I think Mark Zuckerberg, a joint counsel of people making the decision for those type of things. And he basically pushed that decision into the council. And they're like, we're not doing this. We're passing it back to you because the council doesn't want to have anything to do with, mm-hmm. you know, making these sort of decisions. And I kind of agree with that. It's like, why it was like a council, like, of, like who, right? Like, you know, maybe some, someone experienced with human rights or, you know, dem- democracy or whatever. But like, are, is it really fair for small poll people making decisions for like such a big decision, in my opinion? And they kind of kick it up back to Mark and then Facebook kept the suspension, which is not a surprise, which I was just surprised that, you know, that that was a very different approach that Zuckerberg was doing compared with Elon. Yeah. I think that kind of like uh, brings it back to that one comparison between direct democracy versus representational democracy. Like right now we kind of vote politicians in, right? And then the politicians like, you know, like vote on laws itself. It's not like we're directly voting on actual laws that are going to take place, right? Like we're just voting somebody and that's going to vote on that. I think that's kind of how like Mark Zuckerberg took the approach, like Facebook mm-hmm. and Meta. We're going to assemble our own council, obviously. And like um that council... If the people got to vote for the council, I think that could have been like a little bit more fair. Like, um, I know Mark kind of like appointed people based on their expertise, but, um, I can understand why that would be it, but I definitely uh, would much rather prefer direct democracy where you're actually voting on the legitimate issue. Cause no two people have the same point of views on like 10 different issues. You're going to have people that like are different on multiple issues, right? So I think, yeah, like the way like Twitter's doing is definitely something I think is a lot better. And I hope that's kind of like. Maybe I, I doubt Meta will go that direction, but it'd be kind of nice if they went that direction too. Yeah, and I think our current system is, you know, very polarizing as well. Um, just have to put it out there. I mean, everyone knows, but just mm-hmm. a great to strengthen it. Uh, speaking <laughs> of Meta, I think you know, it's great to it's great to go to maybe maybe the last topic we have. So there are rumors from I forgot I think it's called the Capital or something uh, like a news organization that Mark Zuckerberg might step down next year. Um, so it was circulating on Twitter. But I have to say that, you know, the uh, Meta spokesperson said that is false. Um, so I just have to put it on record. But it has been circulating. And it's like some insider with information, knowledge of information. You know. So speaking of this, so let's, let's just not debate the authenticity of it. Let's just debate, like, you know, let's say if that happens, yeah. Zuckerberg steps down next year. Like, what does that mean? And like, what will be the primary reason? So how do you think? Yeah, I think if Zuckerberg were to step down, I think overall... His bet on, meta, on the metaverse is him just saying it's not going to work. I think everything he's ever like bought or invested in end up like, uh, doing well. Like I don't, I think he had a hundred percent track record, like Instagram, WhatsApp. He tried buying Snapchat, like Snapchat blew off, but like they, they said no to him, but no, it still did well. So I think him leaving is kind of a signal that his bet on the metaverse itself was wrong. Like, you know, overall the market has been really against it and he's kept like, uh, pitching the metaverse. But if he were to step down, I think like that would kind of be the signal that, yeah, like he was wrong, which mm-hmm. would be, I think, a horrible, horrible situation for anyone with like meta stock or like uh, even meta employees. Like right now, the layoffs, I can't imagine if Zuckerberg were to you know get uh, leave and then the stock tank, I can't imagine the amount of layoffs then. Yeah, I have heard from the article that the metaverse will continue as usual, just that he will not be at the wall. But the other thing is like, okay, if he's not at the well, then can he really ensure, then can the board and the rest of the team actually ensure that the metaverse is going to continue as usual, right? Because Mark is like the primary person pushing for metaverse, right? So if he's no longer the CEO, then how is that thing going to continue? Um, that kind of my question. Like, what do you think? I think that's kind of what I was trying to allude to. I think I might not have been like uh, clear, but yeah, like obviously meta as a company is way too big. Like at one point it was close to a trillion. I think now it's dropped to like $350 billion. 
which sounds like a big drop, but it's still one of the biggest companies in the entire world, right? Like the company itself is not going to go under. There's too many people, too many stakeholders, shareholders, everything. But I just think if Mark himself were to step down, one, I don't think uh, the direction of Meta would be as focused because I think Mark Zuckerberg was like one of those founders that was very strict with employees too, that you know, just get the work done type of uh, mentality. I don't know if like the new, whoever would be the new CEO, I don't know if they would be the same way. And two, I just think that's kind of also him just admitting that I was wrong about this. And the moment that kind of happens, that sentiment, I can't imagine like the overall metaverse could like do well then, which I was actually kind of excited for the metaverse. Like, I'm not going to lie. I thought it was kind of a cool idea, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, the one thing also you saw is like Sheryl Sandberg left, uh, I mean, a couple months ago, I, I remember it, right? So she left without providing like mm-hmm. a specific reason. So like when you lose a COO, it kind of has damage to the underlying. So like it, no one's doing the traditional COO role anymore. So um, when a company loses a COO, it's actually quite a big thing as well. Um, I, I didn't read too much into it. I do think like, I, I wonder if that's the reason why he's might be stepping down is it because of burnout, right? Because like, I think a certain thing is like, you're being keep, like they've been, Facebook has been around for since 2004. So let's say he announced Metaverse mm-hmm. in 2020. So that's been like, it's been 16 years doing growing Facebook, 16 years growing Facebook, Instagram, and then yeah. making these acquisitions. I think at some point, there's just like a burnout that you just feel like, okay, whatever you're doing right now, is just not adding to any value. You're, you're not changing the world anymore. Uh, you're not like, you're just pushing for like a quarter to be like better than the last quarter. So I think that might be the reason, like, especially like you can see like why, you know, Instacart founder um, kind of stepped down before the IPO. I saw very strange news yesterday or today that Pipe.com's three co-founders just stepped down for whatever reason. They said they want uh-huh. to have someone new coming in, more experienced. I, I I found that to be very baffling. I did not know what's going on because Harry Hurst is like considered one of the best mm-hmm. in the startup world. So I, I'm surprised. But back to the topic, I, I do see like maybe just burnout for him because last week, I think on a pod, you said, so I'm like, Facebook has stopped growing because just as many people as like people who want to sign up for Facebook has signed up. There's no more they can go, right? I kind yeah. of feel like maybe that's the reason for the burnout. It's like, oh, I have already done, I've made it. I've got 2 billion people on Facebook. Like, what more can I do, right? So that, I think that makes sense to dive in, into metaverse, which I still, I agree with that. I think it's, it's a great concept. It's just like, I think the fact that people have to buy it, like expensive VR headset, which is just a very strange thing. And, and I'm, I think it's nothing wrong with the idea. It might just be it's too early, right? Like, I know, like, I don't know if you have friends who bought the Oculus or like VR headsets, uh, but from my experience, they, they <laughs> buy it. They, they buy it and they'll just never use it. Like mm-hmm. the, the drop-off rate is quite high. Like they use it for a couple of times and then just out there, like, you know, gathering dust. That's at least like, okay, from three friends who I know who own something, you know, either an Oculus or something else. So, you know, like it's just hard for general public to own something that's that big, right? And, and not have, it's like just like glasses, you know, like people wear glasses and that can get you to metaverse, I think. Yeah. Think that would be an instant blow up, right? There's no question about that. So that's kind of my thoughts, Doham. Like, well, what do you think might cost a reason? Like, do you think shareholder activists uh, might be pressuring him to step down as well? I think I definitely agree with you that the burnout could be a reason. I think just the idea of metaverse, I'm sure Mark Zuckerberg is really excited about it. It's kind of like Project 2.0 for him, right? Like going from Facebook, growing that all the way to how much he could do. Now he's get, he gets to grow metaverse all the way. I think if there was a burnout, it would probably be just because... When you're a public company, you have like, yeah, those quarterly results that you have to deploy and every quarter has to be good. You can't really have bad quarters, you know, like versus when you're a private company, you can have a couple of bad quarters for like the long-term vision of the company, right? So I could definitely see there being a burnout just because 
he doesn't get to deploy whatever his long-term vision for Meta was, right? Because he's responsible every quarter to get like earnings that are higher than analyst expectations, which must get really tiring if you just want to like develop something new. Like that's the main thing you want to spend your time on. So I think yeah, that burnout could definitely be a reason why. And I also agree, like, um, I don't know anyone that's bought the Oculus headset just because of how expensive the hardware is to be able to access that metaverse itself. So I think that's also like a big problem for man. Plus I've also just read a lot of stories that a lot of people like get motion sickness and stuff whenever like they put that headset on for more than like I'm 30 minutes or something. Yeah. I want to, oh, but I, oh, really? it might just be me. <laughs> might just be me. I also wonder, mm-hmm. like, it's my personal opinion. I don't think they're doing a great job at PR or just like letting the vision out there, right? It's more like, okay, let's just build this thing and then we can prove ourselves to be right. There are many releases from Meta about their metaverse that just got mocked over the internet. I'm not sure if you saw one of those, like uh, Microsoft yes. like a, a metaverse and there's an Alpha Tower behind him. Like which PR team approved that to be out in the world? Like it's just horrible, right? It's horrible PR. Like maybe they, they can use some better background and can they do a better demo? Like you see in game development, like people do it all the time. They, they put up something that's like not real, like cyberpunk. They put up something that's like not really real, but like you look all oh, people got yeah. excited about it. The meta, they're just trying to just pushing something. Oh, like, you know, now like you have a leg in metaverse and people are like, oh, but we have like, we have legs in games for like, you know, decades. So I just think that's very bad. And I don't think we've mm-hmm. heard directly from Mark about those topics. Uh, the only time yeah. I heard from him, I think it's like last month or two months ago, you know, Joe Rogan show, I think he was talking about metaverse, which honestly, if you listen to it, you got really pumped for metaverse. Just like, I don't think the general public actually heard yeah. from him talking about those things. I'm just surprised. That's all. Like, what are your thoughts? Yeah, no, no. I know the podcast on, but and like, that's kind of what got me excited for the metaverse too. Like he was talking about like, oh, these like these fighting games, you can do boxing in the metaverse, right? That would be kind of nice if, you know, you can do boxing, like you'll know your form exactly, right? Like if you have like the technology, like just do that and you get to know exactly like, oh, like the angle of like your arm to like get like a better punch, all that kind of stuff. That got me excited about it. And I think that... The fact that like, oh, is this because I watched the podcast and not because Facebook's marketing team released it while well, I was excited? Why well, I was excited is I think a big thing that they just expect our consumers to kind of understand all the things you can do in the metaverse versus like whenever like you introduce new technology, like disruptive technologies, you have to educate the consumers, right? Into why this is something that's good. Like when like Apple like uh, created the iPhone, like the touchscreen. I know, like, they spent a lot of marketing just educating why this is going to be better than flip phones or, like, the Blackberries and stuff, right? I think that's kind of, like, where Meta has to go, just so consumers understand, like, oh, what's the cool parts about it? Why I would want to spend, like, 500 600 bucks for the Oculus is because, like, oh, there's thing, these legitimate use cases for the Metaverse. I think just in the Meta team internally, it has been difficult to prove that, right? And I don't think... It's because of technology itself. I think it's because they're not even communicating internally about the importance of the metaverse and getting people buy-ins from it, right? I have friends graduating in 2020 who work at Facebook afterwards. And I think that was like when they announced the metaverse vision. So it was still called Facebook back then. And then, you know, now like a year and a half forward, it's called meta and it's going full train ahead on the metaverse vision, right? And I just feel like people are not really buying into it. I've known many people who work on meta. Uh, I just mm. feel like there's not buying into it. And if you can see how... You can see like there's even on the metaverse team, the team manager has to essentially there's like a leak email where the team lead has to beg people to use metaverse more because quote unquote, I think he said like something like we have to love our own products for our consumers to love it too. It's just communication failures. I, I just feel yeah, like it's cool. just unfounded. It's, I, I just don't know how it can go down that fast, you know? So I'm just surprised about that. 
Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. Like the fact that yeah, if you're producing something that's supposed to be cool, right? Like uh, like the metaverse is supposed to be the cool new thing, and if your own employees aren't excited to use it, I don't get like how you kind of expect to be able to scale it to the rest of the consumers. Because employees get to use it for free. They get to use it like unlimited. They probably get like access to like games and stuff like that, that whatever they want, all those things, right? Exactly. But then if you're just uh, a consumer, that's like, there's an actual upfront cost, right? Like to access the metaverse, you have to buy the Oculus. That's hardware itself that's expensive. And for me to like, um, I'll compare it to like the PS5 or something. I understand the PS5. I understand like the social aspect with my friends and stuff, right? If I got the Oculus and none of my friends have it too, I won't want to use it. So it's like the only employees that kind of like their friends, their coworkers, they don't want to use it with each other. And that's a kind of like a worrisome sign. Yeah, I think if you think about it, like it's crazy that when a company gets that size, it doesn't matter if not naming like Meta, I don't think I don't think it's a problem to them. It's like when a company gets that size and they want to pivot, they want to launch something from the scratch, mm-hmm. it gets super difficult. I just feel like it's gets really for every single company. And, and what you see is just like, you know, like uh, apparently Amazon launched Alexa, which by the way, lost a billion dollars last quarter. Uh, which is crazy. But anyways, but they launched oh, really? Alexa. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, and then Google launched Next. And I think Apple launched HomePod. I think that's the name for it. I don't know if Microsoft launched something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying that's their level of innovation. now. Oh, course, they, they, they can't really innovate anymore. And the source of the Alexa innovation, I think Echo, is actually from a fairly small team within Amazon. That's what I heard from the early days. I think now it's scaling. It definitely costs more. But I just feel like for meta to do it like if you think about it like what if meta it's like a startup they just start from scratch like they you have to get funding in order to survive they probably will figure out okay how can we actually make the oculus or something you know way cheaper how can we make it more adaptable to people make it more friendly to people like how can we change our use cases so we can focus on something that's like a proof of concept to get us more fun to keep us going whereas uh, coming from meta like you have billions like you have like tens of billions of free cash flow i'm assuming you can just throw money at a problem but Turns out it's not the way to solve it, right? But buzzling. What, what do you think, Son? Yeah, no, I think you kind of like, uh, we were talking about this kind of like the first thing we talked about here was just, yeah, when you have a company of like a lot of employees, it's just kind of hard. Like when you have like over like 10,000 employees, you don't really know who the end stakeholder is, like in terms of like who is responsible for a task, right? Like when you have like a startup, you have like, like for example, George, your team, like you have like 12 people, right? You kind of know what each person's working on and like what you kind of want out of like every person, right? Like, when you have something as big as Meta, there's no way Mark knows what, like, the people are actually working on a daily basis. You know, like, even when people post on TikTok saying they only work two hours a day, it's not like Mark's going to be seeing that for every employee. That's like, true. When you have, when you don't know, yeah, when you don't know what everyone's doing, then you don't really know how to, like, be able to, like, take that next step, right? Like, um, you get, like, a lot more synergies when, like, let's say everyone's working together. Like, if I know what you're doing and you know what, like, remember, like, group projects when you're in university? Those would always like go really well, even if it was like the last minute you waited to before starting. You were always able to get it done just because people just knew what everyone was doing at the same time. And then that's right. kind of what like the startup culture kind of is too, right? Like you're results driven, you're not people driven. Like when you're at a big company, you're just more performance review driven. You just want your performance review to be good. You don't really care about the actual result of what your code does. Like for example, let's say you can make the best code possible, but you're gonna get a really bad performance review. If you're at a big company, you're not going to do it. But if you're at a startup, you care a lot more about just like getting like a good quality of the product, right? Because that's what's going to get you more bonuses, basically. Yeah, I agree. And I saw that we're a little bit out of time. So I will just wrap it up. It was a great discussion, by the way. I think we went through so many topics and it's great. 
I think we cover many things. So uh, our audiences, if you have any questions in mind you want us to cover, do find us on Twitter, which will be in the description, or you can you know send us an email or anything like that. So we'll be taking a look at that, and then we'll be preparing for next week's content. So thank you so much for tuning in, and thank you, Solon, for being with this episode. Thank you all, and then see you soon.